So last week we were talking about a guy named Abimelech. Abimelech was the son of Gideon. How many of you guys know the story of Gideon in the Bible? The guy who put out the fleeces, the guy who blew the trumpets and smashed the pots and defeated the Midianites by the power of like fear tactics. Super cool guy, but he ended up having a bad ending to his story, turned the whole nation to idolatry. And now his son Abimelech is actually walking in his footsteps. His son Abimelech is causing people to fall into idolatry because Abimelech is just all about himself. Abimelech wants people to worship him. Abimelech thinks the world would be better if I were king. So kind of like how we talked about last time, lions will kill other cubs in a pride when they take over a pride. Abimelech kills 70 of his brothers, kills them all on one stone. And now in the scene that we're about to see, this is right after the killing, right after he executes brutally these 70 guys on one stone. One son got away. One of his half-brothers got away. It was a guy named Jotham, and Jotham runs out to the hills. He's the youngest brother. Imagine the horror of seeing your siblings killed, of finding out that your siblings had been murdered, like just brutally destroyed by your half-brother. Like, really imagine that. A lot of times when we get to Bible verses, we kind of just read it, and we're like, oh, this happened. I want you to really imagine. How many of you guys have siblings? Okay? So imagine like some crazy half-brother of yours who wants to take over your family, like straight up murdered your siblings. This is a terrifying circumstance for Jotham, but he's no coward. He's not filled uh, with, with like fear. He's filled with righteous anger. He wants to see God bring justice into the situation. So Jotham runs on top of a hill and he stands there and he cries out this message for all of the people to hear. So let's listen to what he says. Verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. Let's see what Jotham has to say. Now, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. Let's just stop for a second, okay? Can we acknowledge how weird this is? Like, was that what you were expecting him to say? Like, his brothers just got murdered, he runs on top of a hill, and he's like, listen to me! And you're like, okay, what's he gonna say? Like, what message of justice is he gonna put forth? And he's like, let me tell you about this time the trees got together and had a meeting. It's, it's just very strange. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It, it's, it's, very, it's very strange. He's not being straightforward here. He's got a message of justice, but instead of being straightforward, he decides to go into, like, this Jewish folktale riddle. It's a strange little Jewish poem. It's a story about trees and plants, and, and it's very, very strange. So my question to you guys is, what does it mean? I think that's what we want to look at today. Anytime we read anything strange in the Bible, we always have to ask the question, what does it mean? Never skip over things. Dig deep. So I want you to really, before we read the rest of this poem, I want you guys to put yourself in the place of the story. So imagine you're the people who live in this town, okay? Everyone close your eyes for a minute, okay? So just imagine you live in this town called Shechem, and you're like pig farmers or, I don't know, moisture farmers like in Star Wars, and you farm blue milk, that's a Star Wars thing. Like, literally, Luke's... You can open your eyes now. Um, anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about. Blue milk, whatever. Anyway, um, so... You, but you live in this town, and you know Gideon, okay? You know Gideon, and you know his sons. It's like a local family. Like, you went to school with Gideon and his seven, 70 sons. 
Now, you know about Abimelech, okay? And you know Abimelech's like the black sheep of the family. So let's imagine, you know, this is like kind of like a, you guys know in Beauty and the Beast when Gaston is like, it's true, LeFou, and they're like sitting in that tavern, you know, with like the, the boars on the wall and stuff like that. So imagine you're sitting around in like this tavern and you're talking about Abimelech and you're like, isn't that Gideon's son? One of you says as you're taking a drink of some Jewish wine and eating a lamb kebab. And then another one of you goes, uh, yeah, you know that guy. Uh, I heard he's the son of a prostitute. He's kind of a half blood. He's not a real brother. And then one of your friends like runs through the door and he says, Abimelech just killed half of his brothers or no, all of them. He just killed all of his brothers, all 70 of his half-brothers on one stone. That's insane. And so everyone's freaking out. You guys are like, oh my gosh, like that's insane. Did anyone just survive the massacre? And then one person, let's just say Stefan, because he's in the know. Stefan like raises his hands and he's like, only Jotham. I know, he's my buddy. Jotham, the one son, the runt of the family, he's the one who survived. And then somebody opens up the door and says, hey guys, we should get out here because Jotham is on top of a hill and he's calling everyone in town to come hear what he has to say. Like, can you, can you like feel the tension there? Like this guy has just had his family murdered and now he's standing outside that door yelling something. So everybody's coming out. Like everyone's like, we've got to hear what this guy has to say. So you, you come outside and you see Jotham and he's run on top of the hill and you're standing there and he's wild eyed and bushy bearded and scraggly haired and he's got blood on his tunic and he looks insane. And you're wondering, what is he going to say? What could he possibly say after all of his brothers have been killed by this half-brother? Is he going to make an epic speech, or is he going to start a revolution? Like, what is he going to do? You get me? Or like, you feel what I'm talking about? Like, that kind of tension, what's going on there? So you're, like, waiting for him to say something, and then he opens up his mouth, and he launches into a bizarre story about trees. It's insane. So we're going to get to the story Uh, We're going to go through it. And as you're listening to it, really imagine you're the people in this town listening to this guy talk about trees. And try to put yourself in the place of the people in the village and ask yourself, what does Jotham mean? Because he's obviously not just telling a story. This is called a parable. So Jotham is trying to say something here. He's trying to make a statement. So let's listen again, and we can see if we can figure out uh, what his statement was. Now, when they told Jotham... He went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out, Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil, with which they honor God and men, and go to sway over trees? Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit, and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? 
Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. All right, how you guys doing? You doing good? This is weird. Like, this is very strange. Like, if, if I was someone in this town, I'd be like, what is going on here? Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, that was really long and awkward. What is going on here? I wanted you to experience the long and awkwardness of it. This is strange. Does anyone here think they have any idea of, like, what the interpretation of this parable would be? Anybody? Yeah? I'm not going to call you out. I'm just saying, like, acknowledge that maybe. Okay, so a few of you guys. Awesome. So... He's telling a story here, and he's painting a picture. So he's talking about trees. And he's saying, basically, the trees got together, and the trees wanted a king. And they went to different trees, and they said, hey, you should be our king. They went to the olive tree. They went to the fig tree. They went to the vine. And they said, be our king. But the vine and the fig and the olive tree all said, we're not going to be your king. Well, why? Because we have better things to do. Because God is using us in a certain way. We're producing figs. We're producing shade for people. We're doing all these great tree things. And what he's doing is he's painting a picture of his family. Because if you remember, what did they do to Gideon? Remember his dad, Gideon? They came to Gideon and they said, Gideon, you should be our king. And Gideon said, I'm not going to be your king. i got better things to do. I'm a judge. God is your king. And then they went to Gideon's sons and they said, be our king. And they said, well, no, we're like our dad. We're just going to be the judges. God is king. So then, you know, the, the trees in the story are a picture of Gideon and his family. But then we get to the bramble bush. Now, does anyone know... Does anyone think they know who the bramble bush represents in the story? Anybody? Starts with an A, ends with an Ek, has like a Bima in the middle. It's a Bimelech. There you go. So um, let's, what does this mean? He's calling a Bimelech a bramble bush, a bramble bush. Let's, let's actually, we're going to hear Jotham's interpretation. He just goes and tells us what this means. So here we go. Now, therefore... If you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubal and his house, and have done to him as he deserves, for my father fought for you, risked his life, and delivered you out of the hand of Midian, but you have risen up against my father's house this day, and killed his seventy sons on one stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then you have acted in truth and sincerity with Jerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But, if not, let fire come from Abimelech, and devour the men of Shechem, and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem, and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled, and he went to Beer, and dwelt there. 
for fear of Abimelech, his brother. So that last line about him fleeing to beer, it doesn't mean that he became an alcoholic. It just, like, he, like and then he went and drank himself to death. That's not what it's saying. Uh, it was a town called Beer. So what does this mean? He's talking about Shechem and the men of Shechem and this bramble bush. People going to a bramble bush, a little thorny bush, and saying, you should be our king. And the bramble bush is like, sweet, I'll do it. The bush, the bramble bush, represents Abimelech. He's saying, listen, you picked a thorn bush to be your king. To be the king of the trees, you picked a thorn bush. You wanted a king so badly, but when the people that you want wouldn't become king, you went to the bramble bush, Abimelech. Literally the worst choice. And I don't know, I love the voice actor in that clip because you can really sense the sarcasm in his voice. He's like, great job, guys. You made a great decision. This is awesome. It's like a bramble bush. Like, you guys know what a thorn bush is? Like, if it has, who's ever fallen into a thorn bush? It's the worst. Now, if you're looking at a thorn bush, is that something where, if, if, let's say the thorn bush could talk, and it was like, hey, like, come rest underneath my shade. Can a thorn bush really give you much shade? No. So there's irony here. And then he talks about fire. Look at verse 15, if you have your Bibles open. And then he, the bramble bush said to the trees, if you anoint me king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the trees of Lebanon. And here's what Jotham is saying to the people. He's saying, listen, guys, I hope you're happy with your choice because you picked Abimelech to do your dirty work for you. And if you've done this and if you think that you've done the right thing, then yeah, enjoy the shade of the bramble bush, which is, again, ridiculous because bramble bushes don't give shade. But then he says, however, if that's not the case, if you've done wrong, then I hope Abimelech goes down in flames and takes you with him. That's his heart. It's like... You picked what you picked, and if he goes down, I hope he takes the entire village with you. So there you go. This is the Bible. It's, 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 the Bible is strange sometimes. The Bible is odd. But we study it because we always want to know what is it saying. And I think in any place in the Bible, even if it's a strange little Jewish poem about trees, we can learn applications for our own life. And one of the biggest applications that I see here is the lies of the enemy are always empty promises. Think about Abimelech. He says, I'll be your king. I'll rule you. It's as silly as a thorn bush saying, let me rule you and I will shade you. Satan's the same way. The, the enemy says, hey, let me rule your life. Take shelter in my shade. Now, none of us have ever sold our soul to Satan. Like, hopefully Satan's never appeared in your room and said, hey, I've got a deal for you. None of us make deals with the devil that way. But you know how we do it? When we give into temptation and sin. Every time we choose to give into temptation and sin, to do what we want over what God wants, we are actually making a deal with the devil in that moment. We're saying, yeah, you know what? Maybe Yahweh, maybe God won't rule my life right now, but you will. And the reality is the enemy is going down in flames, just like the bramble bush, and he wants to take as many of us with him as possible. And he offers us so much less than what God gives us, but he always tries to claim that it's more. Satan loves to trick us. I remember once uh, my wife, my wife, uh, sorry, is she here? Okay, I don't know. But I, I was going to make fun of her. Now she's not here to defend herself, but she really likes smart water. Uh, it's a brand of water. And um, because, I don't know. I don't, I, does it make you smarter? I'm not sure. But she really likes it. And, you know, it's a little bit more expensive than normal water. It's like, you know, I don't know, 30 cents more. And sometimes I can be a Scrooge. Sometimes I can be a cheapskate, you know? So she wants to buy smart water. I'm like, babe, just get normal water. And she's like, I don't know. I like the smart 
more water. It makes me smart. She doesn't really think that, but she just likes the taste or something. But I wanted to prove to her that, you know, there was no difference and they were just charging more for this smart water. So I got a smart idea. I bought a bottle of smart water and then I got a bottle of regular water and I poured the contents out into different cups and then I switched the contents and I put the regular water in the smart water bottle. And then I gave it to her and I was like, here you go, babe. I already took a sip of it. Um, you know, so she didn't figure out that the cap was off already. So I was like, I already took a sip. So I gave it to her and she was drinking it. And I was like, how's that smart water? Is it pretty good? And she's like, oh, it's so good. I love this smart water. And I was like, you're drinking normal 7-Eleven water. And then she got upset at me because I tricked her. And Satan is always tricking us. Like I tricked my wife. So I guess I've compared myself to Satan in this story. Um, but Satan loves to swap the good things that God gives us. He loves to always offer us a counterfeit. Like for instance, God created friendship. God has this idea, this model of what godly friendship should look like. And it's not just you like sitting in a prayer circle with your friends, like, no, I laid me down to sleep. Like, I, like, why are you praying that? It's 12 in the afternoon. But it's not sitting around like praying with your friends all the time. It's a godly friendship is when you have a friendship with someone that's so deep that you understand one another. And you know that that person's a sinner, but you love them and, and, and you point them to Christ and you show them the right path and you help them even though they fall and they do the same for you. That's what a great friendship looks like. One where you can have each other's back, but God loves to give us good friendships. The enemy loves to twist that and, and show us what ungodly friendships look like. Friendships where we point one another to sin. Friendships where we're constantly pulling one another into doing things that are not good. Food in the same way. God made food. Food is good. But so often the enemy can turn us to gluttony where we're just stuffing our faces. Um, it, you know, with sex, God created sex. It's a good thing that he made, but the enemy loves to twist it and make it about lust and broken sexuality. Like parties. Like parties aren't a bad thing. Like I grew up thinking, you know, parties are the devil because I was never invited to any parties. So I was just like, oh, like it's the devil. Only bad kids go there. But you know what? In the first century, the early Christians actually gathered together with these awesome parties with food and song and fellowship, all based on their relationship with Christ. It was these great feasts where literally like the Romans were jealous of the early Christians and how awesome their Jesus parties were. But um, you know, the enemy loves to twist this idea of celebration and turn it into worldly parties where instead of celebrating your friendships and just having a good time and just like goofing off together, the enemy makes parties about trying to impress people, rebelling against parents and authority, doing wicked things secretly, hiding in the darkness from the light. I mean, you've all seen party scenes in movies or been to parties yourself. You know what goes on there. Satan loves to plant his counterfeit truth in you. And you know, I think so often we're called to not let those things stay in our life. We're called to drive out sin. I mean, why is Israel in the spot that they're in right now? In Judges, if you haven't been following along with us, this is literally a time where it's like there's no king. It's a kingless kingdom. Israel is in this place because they didn't obey. They chose to do things their own way. They let enemies stay in their land. And it was this lack of obedience that led them to exactly where they are. They're called to drive out these wicked Canaanites, but they end up acting just like them. Israel becomes what they were called to fight against. And in our own life, if we don't drive out sin, we will become what we are called to fight against. And Israel, you know, they're just so comfortable with sin. They're like, why do we need to drive out these Canaanites? 
you know, we can accept them. We can have them in our life. We can just, you know, make them a part of our daily routine. See, that's what the enemy does to you. He says, this sin isn't that big a deal. It's just a little secret sin. Nobody knows about it. It's just once in a while. It's not hurting anybody. It's only between you and yourself. Like, who cares? Who cares? That's what the enemy says. But compromise always leads to more and more compromise. We should not keep sin around. I mean, I hate to be crass, but like, think about this. Imagine you're down by the pier having a great day. Who loves to go down to the Oceanside Pier? I love it. The breeze and the surf and the seagulls and all that stuff. Just imagine, you know, you're walking down by the pier and it's, it's the most glorious, bright, beautiful day. And then you hear a squish. And you're like, that's not good. And you look down and you've stepped in a giant pile of dog dew and it's all over your foot and you're wearing sandals. And so it's like, it's crusted over the side of the sandals and like synced in between your toes. And it's like, literally like you just have a poop foot, or poop foot, a poop foot. You have a poop foot now. Like just how bad would that be? Like how excited would you be about the rest of your day? You'd be like, this is terrible. This is the worst. Like who would want to go home? and like just shower or like go down to the beach and like at least like get your foot all cleaned up. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, everybody. So imagine you're walking and you hear that squish and you look down and you see your foot and you go, that's no big deal. And you just like, would anyone here do that? No, no one. That would be terrible. But so often with sin, we step into the nastiness of sin, which is worse than dog stuff. It is poison. It kills us, the wages of sin are death, and we step into it, and we go, it's just a little sin, it's just a, eh, who cares, guys, we are fooling ourselves, dog stuff can't destroy your life, but sin can, we need to take it seriously, because sin is destroying lives in this story, so let's go back to the story, we've got Jotham here, the son who survived, and after he makes his speech, he runs off. And Abimelech becomes king, and he wipes out, for the most part, all of Gideon's family. So now we're going to fast forward three years into the future to see what happens. Join me in verse 22. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years, God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the crime done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told Abimelech, So now we see God, see right in verse 23, God gets involved in the story. Three years go by, Abimelech is not doing a good job. He is a corrupt and evil king. And so God sees that this crime has been committed against Gideon's family and Israel, 70 sons killed on one stone. And God says, my justice must be done. Abimelech needs to go down. And this is pretty normal. I mean, we often see God getting involved in the story of the Bible and history and our own lives. I see God getting involved in the story of my life all the time. And God gets involved in this story to bring his justice. Because he's a just God, he needs to bring the judgment down. But 
it's not God getting involved in the story that's strange. What struck me in this story is the way that he gets involved. And this is very interesting. Let's look at what it says. Verse 23, it says that God sent a spirit of ill will, or translated differently, an evil spirit. Now, is that strange to anyone? I I know it's actually kind of strange to me. It brings up the question, does God use evil spirits? It says right there, God sent this spirit. So anytime I run into anything like this in the Bible, I think it's always good to dive deep into the text. And that's something as your youth pastor I want to teach you, is how to learn how to dive into the text and figure out these issues for yourself. So one thing that you can do is you can go online and you can just type up any verse and look up multiple translations. So that's what I did. So let's look at what these different translations say. Uh, in the NIV, it says, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens. So that's a little bit more vague. In the New Living Translation, it says, God sent a spirit that stirred up trouble. So God is now sending a spirit that's stirring up trouble. English Standard Version, one of my favorites, said, and God sent an evil spirit. Uh, New American Version, God sent an evil spirit. And these, all these other verses pretty much say the same thing. So it's very interesting. God is sending an evil spirit. So then one thing that you can do is you can dive into the Hebrew, the original language, to see what it says. So in the original Hebrew, it'd be, it'd be phrased like this. Then sent God a spirit evil between Abimelech and between, yeah, I don't know why there's two betweens. So that word for spirit, uh, where it says evil, it's uh, ra'ah, and then before that is a spirit, which is ru'ah, and that's actually pronounced ruach. And that's basically the Hebrew word for breath. Um, And it's the same word to describe God's spirit. So you know how it says, in the beginning was the world, God created the heavens and the earth, and God's spirit hovered over the depths of the water. So imagine God creating the world and his spirit, the Holy Spirit, is hovering above the depths of the water. God is a spirit, and in the same way, demons and angels are also spirits. So this brings us to the question, now that we know for sure that we're dealing with a spiritual being, God, did he use it? Did he use an evil spirit? That, that seems weird to me. Because it seems contradictory to God's nature for God to work together with evil. Well, I think another thing that we can learn is anytime you come up with a difficult passage in the Bible, you can always go to other passages of the Bible that deal with similar issues. Because one of the things I learned at Bible college was the Bible should always be used to interpret the Bible. So let's look at some other passages. We see a similar thing happen in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. We've got another evil king, Saul. And this is in the future after Judges. So it says, this is after Saul had done a bad job and he had rejected David and was going after David. It says here, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. So before the spirit was on Saul. You know how you go to camp and you get filled with the spirit, you get the baptism of the spirit. So Paul or, uh, Saul had the spirit, but now it says that the spirit had left him. And so now an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. It's very interesting. So here's the question. If God is good, then why would he work together with evil? What does this verse mean? Does it mean that God literally hired a demon? Like he literally like went to hell and was like, hey, you demon, I'm sending you to do my work for me. Is that how God works? Well, I found some really good stuff in a commentary that I want to read to you. Here's what it says. 
set aside the phrase from the Lord for a second and focus instead on the part of the verse that says the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That would be the Holy Spirit, right? So the spirit came upon David and then left Saul. When God's spirit goes out of a person, the devil's spirit goes in. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, that he who is not with me is against me. Nobody is neutral. Everyone has various degrees of either God's spirit or the spirit of the enemy. To the same extent that we empty of ourselves, God can fill us with his spirit. What he's saying there is that We are all spiritual, like we are created as spiritual beings, and the enemy, Satan and his demons, are constantly going after people. They have influence over people's lives. I'm not talking about like straight up demon possession, but I'm talking about influence. If you don't have Jesus, you are being influenced by an evil spirit. But if you have Jesus, the spirit of the Lord doesn't just fall on you, but it comes inside you. It dwells inside your heart. And those evil spirits cannot have the same influence that they did before. Let's, uh, I'm going to continue on in this commentary. It says, when the Bible says that a spirit from the Lord troubled Saul, it doesn't mean that God said, I've got a devil I'm going to give you. As evidence, look at the story of Job. How many of you guys have heard the story of Job? Yeah? So this guy who suffers so much. So uh, the story of Job, it says the devil came to the Lord and wanted to attack Job, but he couldn't do anything until after God had withdrawn his protection. After God withdrew his protection from Job, he said, he is in your hand, but spare his life. The next verse in the New King James Version goes on to say, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils. This is very interesting. So in the book of Job, Satan tries to attack Job. He says, I'm going to attack this guy, Job, who's your servant. And Yahweh basically says, you can only do what I allow you to do. And, and, And so Yahweh says, you know what, Satan, I will allow you to attack Job. But if God had not given him permission, then Satan wouldn't have been allowed to have any power over Job. Now here's the reality. Satan, listen, and his forces are constantly trying to attack us. I don't want to scare you. Like, I don't want you to leave today and, like, see demons everywhere. But listen, the enemy, there is a war for our souls constantly going on. And listen, if you're here and you're saved today, if you receive Jesus in your heart, Satan knows that he can't get you to go to hell, but he can try to make your life miserable. He can try to tempt you and distract you from what Jesus has for you. And so Satan is constantly trying to attack us, but often he and his forces are not permitted by God. Satan is constantly being held back from God. But then there are times where God allows Satan to do what he does. Um, Another thing the commentary said was when the Bible says that an evil spirit came from the Lord, it means that God withdrew his protection from Saul after Saul rejected him. When God withdrew his protection, the devils were allowed to bring a depression upon him. The Bible says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape. Now listen, here, here, just to summarize what I'm saying, Think of Job, okay? Heavenly courtroom, okay? So God and the angels are there. A demon comes and approaches the throne of God and says, God, I want to attack Job. And Yahweh says, you know what? This actually works into my plan. I'm going to use what you meant for evil for something good. Go ahead. Like, do what you will. But just so you know, you're going down. So now the demon is leaving God's presence. He's going out from the throne of God. And so, in a way, he has been sent out from God's presence to do the dirty work. Does that mean that God hired him? Does that mean that God, like, went down to hell and pulled him? No, the demons are constantly trying to attack, and so God sometimes gives permission. Now, why would he do that? 
Why would God give permission to a demon? Well, listen, nothing is out of his control, and and God does not control sin. He's not the one initiating it, but at times he allows it to happen. And I think the Bible Project does a great job of answering this question in their video about the idea of sacrifice and atonement. So I'm going to play a little part of that video really quick. We all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hmm. Therefore, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. Okay, I think that is super profound. I'm not going to show you the whole video because we don't have time. But what he's saying in that video is that we are all corrupted by sin nature. And so I don't know about you, but have you ever asked the question, like, if God is so good, why doesn't he just get rid of all the bad things in the world? Have you ever thought that? I thought that. If God is good, like, why doesn't he stop all the natural disasters? Why doesn't he prevent everyone from sinning? Why doesn't God just get rid of evil? Well, here's the problem. We have this thing called a sin nature, the flesh. If God were to ultimately get rid of all evil, he would have to get rid of us. Even more so, if God were to completely get rid of sin at this point in the story, like if God were just to just stop you from sinning, it would basically be mind control. He would basically be taking away your ability to choose anything, and now you would have no free will to do anything. And so, honestly, this place that we're in before we get to heaven, this space and time where we're here on earth, God has allowed evil to exist, and sometimes he allows the enemy to do what he does. I think the fact that God is constantly preventing the enemy, stopping the enemy from doing things, is much more compelling. You should know in your life, there's probably been so many times where the enemy wanted to attack you. He wanted to make you sick. He wanted to tempt you, discourage you, depress you, and God held him back. And there's only ever been times where you were tempted or attacked by the enemy that God allowed that to happen because God knew that if you turned to Jesus in that time that you could withstand against what the enemy sent towards your way. I think it's so much grace to see that God is constantly sparing us from what the enemy has. So let's go back to Abimelech now. What what goes on in this story? The evil spirit targets Abimelech and he causes issues between Abimelech and the people in that country. And so what happens is the men of Shechem They do not like Abimelech. They don't want anything to do with him because they hate what happened with the crime of the 70 sons that were killed. And so the men of Shechem, they, they go to get this ambush against him and they set all of these robbers and to attack people. And so here's what happens. It's kind of dumb that they did this. It's kind of silly. They, 
are really sloppy with their execution because instead of their, their, their whole mindset is they want to attack Abimelech. They want to like wait in the hills and attack him as he comes and rob him and just kill him so he's not king anymore. But instead of waiting for Abimelech, they get bored and they start robbing everybody. And so here's the question. If you get robbed, who do you go to? The authorities. Who's the authority at this time? Abimelech. So they're waiting to ambush him, but instead they end up alerting him, and so now he knows. Um, uh, David, go ahead and mute the projector, just because we don't have time uh, to go through everything. We're running out of time, so I'm going to just speed through some of this stuff. So here's what happens next. In verse 26... There is basically a conversation that is had between this guy named Gale, the son of Ebed. And he basically, he reminds me of Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. He's basically sitting around and he says to his friends, look at Abimelech. Who made him king? Who is this guy? We have got to take him out. We have got to fight against him. So skip over to verse 34, and we're going to see kind of this attack plan that's laid out. So in verse 34, Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night, and they lay in wait against Shechem and the four companies. They're going to attack the town of Shechem. So then Gael, the guy who says, who is Abimelech? I'm going to fight against him. Gael, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance to the city gate. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebel, Zebel's like his chief of staff, like his head soldier. He says to Zebel, look, the people are coming down from the top of the mountains. And Zebel says, you see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. And so Gail spoke again and said, see, people are coming down from the center of the land. Basically, here's what's happening. So um, this gets a little complicated, but um, Gail is the guy who's attacking Abimelech in this situation. Zebul is working for Abimelech. He's like a spy. And so Gail is looking out and he's like, look, there's soldiers coming towards us. They're going to attack us. And Zebul's just like, those aren't soldiers. Those are shadows of mountains. Silly. Like, it's just silly. <laughs> so um, Gail says, no, listen, the people are coming. And then Zebul says, well, listen, where indeed is your mouth now with which you said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not the people whom you despised here go out and you will and fight against them. He's basically like, you're a chicken, dude. You were bragging about how you were going to take out Abimelech and now his soldiers are coming towards you. Dude, get out there and fight. He totally knows that if Gale goes out there, he'll get destroyed. So that is basically what happens. Let's look at verse 42. It came about the next day that the people went out into the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people and divided, and divided them into three troop companies and he laid in wait in the field and he looked and there were the people coming out of the city and he rose against them and attacked them. And then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance to the gate of the city. And the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day and he took the city and killed the people people were in it and demolished the city and sowed it with salt. This is just, this is just total destruction. It's a bloodbath. The reason that he sows the salt, you're like, why did he do that? I wondered that too. The reason that he did it was because if you like destroy a town and then you want to like really destroy it, if you throw salt on the ground, it makes it so that nothing can grow there. So he like not only like burns down their village, he's like, I'm going to make sure no one here ever has a village ever again. He's that intense. So now the fight continues. Look at verse 46. Now, when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god of Beerith, 
And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. Abimelech's attacking this town. All of the people like flee and they go into this tower. They're there in this skyscraper kind of thing. Not really because they weren't around back then, but this tower. And they're all like, okay, if we just stay in this tower, we'll be fine. Abimelech's crazy. Let's just let him pass through our town and we'll be safe. Uh, so Abimelech went up to the Mount Zalman and he and all the people who were with him and Abimelech took an ax in his hand and cut down a tree or a bough from the trees and he took it and laid it on his shoulder um, kind of like again Beauty and the Beast they've got that battering ram kill the beast breaking down the door and he said to the people who were with him what you have seen me do make haste and do what I have done so each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and followed Abimelech and they put them against the stronghold and set the stronghold on fire above them so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died about a thousand men and women and I assume children This is just total carnage. Abimelech is out of control. He is mad with power. He's killing just random innocent people in this town. They they went in the tower and they're like, Abimelech, you need to cool down. Leave us alone. Abimelech's like, I'm going to burn down your tower. And they get a bunch of wood and they literally kill. How many people was it again? Let me see. A thousand men and women. This is intense. So this is the scene where God needs to show up and do something. Like, God needs to show up and bring justice to this story. So, we're about to see that. As the story ends, we're about to see Abimelech get what's coming to him. Let's go to verse 50. Last week, we did like seven verses. Today, we did like 40-something. You guys have been great. I know it's a lot, but we're almost done. Verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and took it. He's just like, I'm just going to take over the whole area. He's just this mad king going and taking over towns. He's like, God didn't tell him to do any of this stuff. You have to understand. Like, God is not the one leading Abimelech. He just wants what he wants. So, verse 51, there was a strong tower in the city, and all the men and women and the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in. So, what did he just do? The last section. People went to a tower, and he was like, you can't hide from me in that tower. I'm going to light you on fire. So in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to take these guys out. So Abimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, but he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. He's got the same battle strategy. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and crushed his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Hey, uh, can you draw your sword and kill me so that people don't say of me, a woman killed him? And his young man thrust him through with the sword and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone just went home. <laughs> They're just like, okay, we're done. I love it. This is incredible justice. Uh, For Abimelech, his God was his pride. He wanted to make a name for himself, and yet who killed him? Was it some great king? So it went down in legend, you know, people sang songs about the great battle that Abimelech had with, like, King Tut of Egypt or something. No. Does he go down in a blaze of glory fighting a warrior? No. He he gets a rock dropped on his head. Just, like, and then he's dead. And it's it's a woman. And listen, Back then, that was a big deal because, you know, a woman was seen as much weaker. A woman was seen as like a servant, basically, like a second-class citizen. So it wasn't a king or a man, a soldier who brought him down. It was a 
woman. And so he goes down in history, not as a brave warrior, but as this vain, narcissistic coward. He's one of the first blatant sexists in the Bible. He's this guy who's just like, dude, I can't let people know that a girl killed me. That's like a fate worse than death. And are any girls here offended by that? I don't know. Um, I'm, you know, it's not me. It's, it's Abimelech. It's his attitude. And, um, in his day, to die by a woman's hand would have been a disgrace for a man. But, like, it's kind of intense. Like, how many of you guys, like, if, like, a girl stabbed you, you'd be like, dude, shoot me in the face so that no one knows that a girl stabbed me. That's basically what's going on. That's Abimelech's heart here. And, and I think it's hilarious how misguided it is because let's think it through. Like, let, Abimelech, let's just talk to Abimelech for a second. Not really because he's dead. But, like, if I could talk to him, I'd be like, Abimelech, come on, man. What's worse, having the reputation of being killed by a woman or having the reputation that you were so narcissistic and vain that you had your armor boy stab you to death to make sure that no one remembered you for being killed by a woman, right? Which one's more silly? It's, it's the second one. I mean, his plan totally backfires on him. It just makes his story so much more pathetic. Like, this is the conversation that probably happened back then. Like, people were going to talk about him and be like, hey, how'd he die? Oh, his armor boy stabbed him. Why'd he do that? Because a woman dropped a rock in his head and he didn't want to be remembered for that. Oh, cool. Like, that's just, that's his memory now. That's his legacy. So I guess technically he got killed by a lady and his armor boy. Sweet. So, chapter 9, how does it end? Some of you guys are probably wondering, like, yes, please, Lord, how does it end? Um, Personally, I think it's great and I'm excited by it. Um, But verse 56, this is the ending. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. And all the evil men of Shechem, God returned to their own, or returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Remember back to Jotham, the crazy wild-eyed guy who's like, hey, if you guys are going to follow the bramble bush, I hope you all go down. That's exactly what happens. And so this is a sad story. I think the moral that we can take from this story is that your heart directs your attitude and your impact. Abimelech had this attitude of, you know what? I'm going to take what I want. Nothing can stand in my way. I'm unstoppable. He had this ambition, but it led to his destruction. His heart was not to serve, not to love. His heart was only, I can do whatever I want and get whatever I want. Now, none of you guys are going around burning down towers, but in every single one of us is that heart that says, I can do whatever I want. I can be whatever I want. That's Abimelech. Is that you? What's Jesus like? Jesus was a king, but a self-sacrificial king. Abimelech just wanted to be king. Jesus said, I'm going to love and serve everyone I come in contact with. I'm not going to take what I want. I'm going to give myself to others. When you look at Abimelech and Jesus, they are a complete contrast. And so for us, like, we need to ask the question, like, what are we living for here today? High school freshmen. Like, this is not a fun study to give. Like, this is not like, oh, like, happy, positive, like, fun story. Like, go home and, like, be encouraged. Like, we just read about a guy who killed all of his brothers and, like, murdered a 1,000 people and then got a rock dropped on his head. Happy Sunday, right? That's what we're dealing with. And so this is what happens when we read the Word of God. We have to ask the question, what is God saying to me? And I think for all of you in particular... You might come here and you might hear this message and it just, if you're not open to what God might say to you, it might just go right over your head, in one ear, out the other. 
But if you listen and ask God, this is what David said, the psalmist, King David. He wrote, Lord, search my heart. If there's anything in me that's not right, remove it from me. Give me a heart more like you. Listen, are you like Abimelech in any way? Is there any part of you that right now in your own life, you're like, I can do whatever I want. Mom, dad, forget what you have to say. Teachers, forget what you have to say. Pastor, God himself, like, I don't care what the Bible says about this issue. I'm gonna go to church and I'm gonna do my homework, but then when it comes to this one thing in my life, I just wanna do what I wanna do. That might sound great, but look where it gets Abimelech. Guys, the wages of sin is death. And like I said, if Satan can't drag you to hell, he will try to make your life a living hell. He will try to make your life a life where you have a saved soul, but a wasted life. I wanna encourage you guys, like seriously, go home today and pray and say, Jesus, help me to not be like Abimelech in any way. Help me to be like Jesus. Help me to not say, my will be done at all costs and be selfish and ambitious to the point where I'm destroying other people. Help me to be like Jesus and say, Jesus, how can I live like you? How can I be kind and humble and loving and passionate but meek, power but under control? All right? Let's pray and ask God to help us to carry that out in our life. Jesus, we love you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these stories that you recorded for us in the book of Judges that just remind us, God, of the dangers of a life that doesn't have you at the center, the dangers of a life where sin and appetite and flesh is just controlling everything. God, we see this guy Abimelech and just what a rampaging maniac he was. But Lord, so often in our lives, we can be like this with sin. We can say, I want sin. I need sin. I've got to have sin. And so I will go after it and I don't care. And then, of course, after we've sinned, Jesus, we come to you and we ask for forgiveness. But what we don't realize is we're corrupting our soul. We're, we're wearing Lord, the, the, the robes of unrighteousness in those moments, God, we, we are grieving your spirit, the Bible says. We're making the Holy Spirit sad. Jesus, help us, Lord, to understand that you love us so much that you're constantly holding back the enemy. But Lord, I know that sometimes you do allow bad things to happen to us. Sometimes, God, you do allow the enemy to attack us. And a lot of times, God, that's maybe because you wanna test us maybe because you wanna grow us, Lord, and help us to rely more on you. And other times, maybe it's even because you wanna punish us, Lord. Just like a loving father allows their child to get a shot at the hospital because he knows that that kid needs that medicine. God, you allow us to go through pain at times because you wanna bring us back to you. Your punishments, God, are never to destroy us. They're always to restore us. If there's anyone here right now, God, and just in their high school years, who's going through a time where they feel like, God, that they're being punished for their sins, whether it's by their parents or their teachers or by you, help them not to run from that punishment, but to run to it and to say, Jesus, what are you trying to teach me through this punishment or through this trial? God, help us to not just, just tighten our fists and say, you can't punish me, God. You can't do anything to me. You can't tell me anything. I do what I want. God, help us to just break our hearts. God, give us humble hearts so that we come to you and say, Jesus, whatever you wanna do in and through my life, 
you do it. Because otherwise, God, we're being just like Abimelech. Help us to not be that way, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.